Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here with us today. We're glad to see you. Um, and for everyone who is with us online, we're glad that you are here with us in spirit as well. <clears throat> I don't know if you know this about me, but I've always been wise. <laughs> wise kind of beyond my years. <clears throat> I, I remember several years ago when I was a youth ministry intern, uh, somewhere around the age of 20, um, I got into a lively discussion with one of the members of the youth group of the church where I was interning. And we got into this discussion about why we do what we do as Christians. Uh, why do we make the choices that we make? Why do we uh, choose to live a different kind of life? Why do we change our behavior? Why do we treat others differently? And her premise was that the main reason why we change our behavior when we become Christians is because we don't want to go to hell. And she felt, she felt very passionately about this. I said, no, we live different lives because God loves us. And that's our motivation and why we do what we do. So I want you to take just a moment and to uh, converse with someone who is close to you, and I want you to answer this question. Who got it right, me or her? <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> Now, I, I know what you're thinking. Uh, how could Bryce possibly be wrong in his own story that he's telling you uh, this morning? Um, in some ways, I think that we were both right. When we talk about what motivates us to live different lives, people do obey God because they don't want to go to hell. Uh, people also obey God because of God's love, and for most, most people, I would imagine that it is probably some mixture of those things. Um, I, I, I've had too many conversations with Christians, and I think I've told you this before, towards the end of their lives, when they wonder if they're going to heaven or not, because they're looking back on everything that they did. So, so she's right that in some ways, we are motivated by the end game, by what's going to happen when all of this is over. The question is an important one. What motivates us to live lives that God wants us to live? And is one motivation better than the other? Well, I, I, I think it would be pretty easy to say, well, there is a pretty distinct difference between those two motivations, isn't there? One is fear or punishment-based. The other is coming from a very different place that really isn't about fear or punishment, but it's about what God is, how God is not punishing us, how he loves us and cares for us. Now, Paul has uh, made several things clear through the first 11 chapters of Romans. He has gone uh, into, great deal, into great detail explaining 
how we are to think about God, salvation, ourselves, and one another. But I don't know if you've thought about this yet, Paul hasn't actually told them how to live like Christians. He's told them how to think like Christians. He's laid down this theological background uh, for how they should think. And so the question that we have that he wants to deal with now, at the end of chapter 11 and going into chapter 12, is what are we now to do with this 11 chapters of information about how we should think? How do we begin, even begin to apply all of these things to our actions and how we live? So let's take one quick look uh, at our recap from last week, what we saw from the rest of Romans chapter 11. Number one, we tend to make things about ourselves. Um, when we make things about ourselves, we run the possibility of missing out on all of the good things God is doing because God is not doing everything through you. Fair? Yeah? We cannot be so self-involved that we get upset when God does something outside of us, whether it's us as individuals or us as a community. The story of what God is doing through Jesus is way bigger than any one person or group of people. And some will choose to believe in Jesus and some will not, but God will not make anyone choose him. And lastly, no one is beyond his reach. So as we pick it up here in Romans chapter 11, you're going to hear the same argument that Paul has been given for the last, I don't know, three chapters. I do know it's three chapters. But it's important for us to kind of to use this, uh, what he says here, to kind of swing our way into Romans chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles open up to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 32. And here's the first thing that God wants them to know. What God is doing in the world through Jesus is about taking an impossible situation and redeeming it. Okay. Now, what do I mean when I say taking an impossible situation and redeeming it? He's, he takes what he has in humanity, and he doesn't wave a magic god wand over everything, and everything is okay. Instead, he, he takes what he has in the situation, and he makes it into something new. He makes it into something new. So listen to what he says here. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, and keep in mind here he's talking about Jews that have not chosen Jesus. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Totally clear, right? Right? I can just sit down at this point. 
So yeah, this takes us back to where we were last week, but I wanted us to hit on this section before we move on, because this passage reminds us of something important. As much as the concept of God loving and saving the world is a simple one, it becomes much more complicated because people are involved, right? It becomes much more complicated because people are involved. And Paul has urgently spoken to Jews, to Jewish, Jewish Christians, to Gentile Christians, because the one thing they need to understand if they are going to move on is how this whole system works. That's what he's been trying to do for these 11 chapters, to tell them how this system works and why it works in the way that it does. So let's do a quick and dirty recap right here. Number one, everyone is a sinner. Who is a sinner? Everyone. Everyone is a sinner. Number two, the law cannot save you. The law only points out what sin is so that you can then go ahead and go sin. Uh, you are not capable of saving yourself. You are not capable of stopping sin in your life. You are not capable of doing what the law would require of you. You are not capable of saving yourself. Therefore, all people are sinners and they need a savior. And the good news is Jesus is that savior. And we are all saved. No matter who you come from or what your background is, we are all saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We die with him in baptism and we are raised to a new life. But don't get confused and think that God has turned his back on his own people. Even Abraham was considered righteous through faith. And even those who have rejected Jesus have a way back because no one is beyond the reach of God. That's a summary of 11 chapters right there. You're welcome. And this is where we end up today. All that he had taught about the unfortunate condition of faithless Israel, the grafting in of these different branches to the root uh, of believing Gentiles and how this would maybe uh, lead the Jews who hadn't chosen Jesus uh, to, uh, to envy them, he says that the product of this is going to be that all Israel will be saved. All Israel will be saved. So what does he mean when he says all Israel will be saved? Does he mean that... Jews who do not believe in Jesus, uh, it's fine, because they're Jews. Well, no, he doesn't mean that. He's, he spent the previous 11 chapters establishing that we all need Jesus. But he didn't want the Gentiles to be misinformed about everything that was going on. So here's how he lays it out, and it's confusing, I know, when you first read it. But here's what he's saying. The Jewish people turned away from God to where the relationship that they had with God was not what it was intended to be. And because they turned away from God and disobeyed, what happened? It created an opportunity for God to take something that was really messed up and redeem it, to make it something new. So he takes the rejection by the Jewish people and he sends Jesus in response to that. And when Jesus comes on the scene, who are the first people that are converted and become believers? They're all Jews. They're all Jewish. The Jewish people are given an opportunity first to hear the gospel, to hear about God, and to change their lives and believe in him. And then... 
the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. So, indirectly, because the Jewish people disobeyed, now Gentiles can be saved. But just because some Jews have chosen not to believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean that now they are beyond the reach of God. All will be saved if they choose to believe in Jesus. And Paul was saying that beyond the current period of Israel's unbelief, there would come a time when believing Jews would turn to Christ in faith. They would join those who have already chosen to believe in Jesus. They would join the Gentiles, and they would become the family of God, which stretches throughout all of redemptive history. He takes a mess, and he redeems it. And he takes rejection on behalf of one people, and he turns it into redemption for the world. God is pretty great, you know. He's pretty great. And he wanted everyone, when they come down to the bottom of all of these arguments, to, to understand this, that everyone is, in fact, on the same playing field. Everyone is in the same place. The Jews were once the people of God, tied directly to God, but they moved away from him, and because of that, Jesus came to the world. The Gentiles were once away from God, and they have been brought into God through Jesus. So all who have faith in Jesus will be saved, and for those who do not believe, they will have every chance to come back and believe. They will have every chance, so that not just all people, but all Israel will have a chance to believe in Jesus. This is a really important message for us, you know? Because it reminds us that even though the people of God had lost their way, and even though they had crucified and rejected Jesus, God still wanted them back. God still wanted them back, and he wanted to, Paul wanted to make sure that these new Gentile Christians are not like, well, you were the people of God and you rejected Jesus and there's no place for you now. Instead, what does God say? There is a place for everyone in Jesus Christ. You hear me? There is a place for everyone in Jesus Christ. So imagine now that you've read these first 11 chapters out loud as a community. You've, you're probably tired at this point. Uh, you've heard some things that you don't know uh, what to do with, and maybe you're stuck on the finer points of theology. And the question then is, what should your response be to all of this? All of this that you've heard, your brain is so full. It's so full of information. It's so full of trying to understand what God is doing. It's so full of, of, of seeing the shift of how God is moving in the world and how big his plan of salvation is. So what do you do? You stop and you worship him. Amen. So Paul wrote these words. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him 
and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church said, Amen. This is an important moment of worship in the book of Romans. It's an important moment for him to stop and shift the conversation. And many believe that Paul wrote this himself. That this was his own doxology that he put in here. And what is important about it is what it recognizes about God. You know, who told God to send Jesus to save the world? Who understood what he was doing when he put this plan into motion? Who had a better idea about what should have been done? Who now can sit back and say, God, you should have done this differently? Who can do any of those things? No one. But the beauty of that is that God in his own goodness and love and mercy and kindness chose to redeem an awful situation and bring salvation to the world. He chose that. You didn't choose that. He chose that. How wonderful is our God that his ways, that his movements brings him to salvation for all. Let's stand and worship him together. Salvation belongs to our God.
Church, salvation belongs to our God alone. And he wields his salvation recklessly. He does. So now what? The theology has been laid out in front of us. Paul has made things, I know it doesn't seem that way, as clear as he possibly could. It is now time to talk about how we are to live in light of this God who has chosen to save us. But before we get into the way that Paul wants us to live, we have to recognize that there is inherent danger in this change. Because once he starts talking about behavior again, to a people he has just tried to break their dependence on the law, what does he not want to happen? To establish a new set of rules that they can follow. So he begins this statement about who we should be, about how we should be, with a powerful image that tells us what all of what our life is really about once we know that we are saved by Jesus. And what does he say? Chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Man, that's a loaded two verses right there. There's a lot for us to unpack, so let's start at the top. Paul expects us, and I don't know if you considered this, given all the kind of roundabout that we've done with Paul and his arguments, but he expects us to come out of the first two-thirds of the book of Romans with a great appreciation for one thing, the mercy of God. That's the point, is to speak of God's great mercy, not just to Jews, not just to Gentiles, not just to those who believe, but to those who will believe. God's mercy is great. And he wanted to explain in detail how things work so that everyone who now comes to this point will realize that no one will get left behind by God. That everyone will have an opportunity to choose Jesus and to have faith in him. And the bottom line of the first two-thirds of the book is that God has shown great mercy to those who did not deserve mercy. I mean, think about where the book of Romans started. You invent ways of doing evil. There is no one who is good. And we get to this point, and, and Paul wants us to look back and be in awe of the mercy of God. And if God had not done what he did for us, honestly, there would be no compelling reason why we should now do what he says. It would be like exchanging one rule book for another rule book. The dynamic of God's 
ethical instruction, how we are to live, arises from its relationship to who he is and what he has done for us. In other words, you don't become what God wants you to become because it's written down somewhere. You become who God wants you to become because you understand his mercy toward you. This, the knowledge of this great mercy is what changes us from within. It's where we develop our ethic. It's the understanding of who God is as the giver of mercy that will create any sort of change in us. And it makes me wonder, church, at the times where people have approached a Christian community and they have been told right off the bat to change their behavior. Instead of being told how merciful God is. It is the knowledge of Jesus that changes us. Amen? Amen. It is the knowledge of God's love that makes us different than anyone else. And the metaphor that he uses to explain this is, is the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But instead of bringing an animal to sacrifice, we put ourselves on the altar. We climb up on top with the fire burning around us, and we give our lives as a living sacrifice. But we will not lose our lives as those animals would. We continue to live continually as a sacrifice to God. And this giving of our life to him is an act of what? It's an act of worship. What do we do when we worship? We praise. We think. The purpose, one of the main purposes of worship is to acknowledge God. To say who he is, to speak, to sing, to pray the truth of who God is into existence right in front of us. And therefore, when we climb up on the altar and we offer ourselves, it is an acknowledgement of who God is, this great, merciful, and loving God. And when we, when we do this, God is pleased with us doing this. And this is what worship means now to these people who are trying to figure out what it means to live this life that, that Paul is talking about. It doesn't mean going to the temple to offer an animal on your behalf. Worship means perpetually offering yourself to God and making your life a sacrifice to him. And the reason you do this, the reason you do this is because God has been merciful to you and that moves you. That moves you. And if verse 1 speaks of this sort of specific act in which we offer ourselves to God, verse 2 tells us of two ongoing activities that help us be living sacrifices. Number one, believers are no longer to conform themselves to the pattern of this world. You are here, but you're not here. And this was part of the problem all along, is that we conformed to the world. And we took God, something that was not of this world, and we tried to make him more like the world. 
And we changed who he is and how he works and what the rules mean and who is in and who is out. The lure of life outside of God was a powerful force. It is a powerful force that we cannot deny. And again, you, you, you see it in how the law that God gave was turned on other people. This is the pattern of the world. I'm in, you're out. I'm better, you're not better. <laughs> we are no longer citizens of the world when we are joined with Christ, though. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the church should stand out from the world as a demonstration of God's intention for the human race, which is what? That all would be saved. So how do we do this? Well, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. The transformation that Paul uh, is talking about here is not a change affected from without as if we, we like put on, you know, a new outfit and we just look different. It's a radical reorientation that begins deep within our heart. A, a renewed mind is concerned with the issues, is not concerned with the issues of life, but is concerned with these things that are of lasting importance. The mind renewed enables us to then, as we are transformed, as our thinking is transformed, as we begin to live within this great mercy of God, we begin to understand the will of God. And we begin to understand how God is moving in the world. And, and what we see, church, is that the will of God is less about you doing the right things all the time. It's, it's less about, you know, you getting the gold star this week. It's, it's less about people thinking that you're the best. And you find that the will of God is centered, yes, he wants us to be different people, but it's centered around his mercy. That God wants the world to be saved, that he wants those who have rejected him to come back, that he wants all to know and hear, not that they have to change their lives, but that God loves them so much, it's going to change them in ways they can't imagine. Let me break it down in another way. Here's why these verses are so dependent on the previous 11 chapters. I'm, I'm kind of a David Letterman fan. Um, he's always been my favorite. And in January of 2000, David Letterman went to the doctor for a routine checkup and found out that his heart was severely instructed, obstructed, I mean. And they decided it was so bad, they could not wait another moment. And they rushed him to the emergency room and put him into surgery where he had a quintuple bypass. He was on the doorstep of being dead. And if this hadn't have been discovered in that moment, chances are he would have had a massive heart attack and not survived. He returned to the show a month later. And when he returned to the show, everyone was so excited, and he was so excited. And at the very beginning, he brought out all the doctors and nurses that worked on him. And he put them on the stage and he said to the audience, these are the people that saved my life. And he teared up more than once talking about what they had done for him. 
And his bond to them was so remarkable that many of them became some of his best friends. The point is, it's a powerful thing when you know you would be dead without the actions of those who are capable of saving you. It's a powerful thing when you know that you would be dead without the actions of those who are able to save you. There is no power, no greater action taken on your behalf than God's Son coming down, living amongst us, dying for us, and being raised again. There is no more powerful love, mercy, or gift than the salvation that you've already been given before you chose it. There is nothing more powerful than a God who loves you in spite of your knuckleheadedness with full knowledge of who you are and all of the ways that you come up to disobey him. He knows all of that. Because we were all sinners lost without hope and all of our efforts to save ourselves have failed and we were desperate without answers without hope and as paul put it in chapter 7 what a wretched man i am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death thanks be to god who delivers me through jesus christ our lord the mercy and love of god is what changes us if we know that we were dead and through Jesus, God has given us new life, how can we help but not be motivated to live for him? How can we not be? And so we climb up on the altar and we sacrifice ourselves. We allow God in to the deepest parts of who we are, his love and mercy and goodness radiating through us. Our mind is changed because we now see a world not to be used and manipulated from our benefit, but a world that God loves so dearly. And we see those who we desperately want to know him as well because he is so good. And we go on to become a different people, distinct from the world around us. Because we are a people who has been shown mercy. We cannot forget that the very center of all of this, of why we're here, of who we are, of what we do, is the great mercy of God. Amen. Let's recap. All Jews, Gentiles, believers, non-believers are all in the same boat. Everyone is in need of a Savior. All are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. No one can understand God, but his ways are better than our ways, so it's okay. God saw fit in his great understanding to be merciful to the whole world. And because of that, we are changed from the inside and we willingly offer ourselves to God. 
In order to do this, we must renew our minds, not letting it fall back into the pattern of life before Jesus so that we look like everyone else in the world around us. And we are transformed by this, by new thinking, a new heart, and a new life. And it is through this transformation that happens inside of us that we will be able to finally understand the will of God, which is not to keep people out, but to bring them in.